Just before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this episode of Untold Killing contains graphic descriptions of physical and sexual violence. Please use discretion. Were you aware of any instances of guards raping female detainees? Yeah. Yes. Sadly, but it was happening from the very beginning. Only at the very beginning, it was happening in the villages. It would happen in houses that were surrounding Ternopolje, where when Muslim people still were living in their houses and guard would go through the village, would just uh, choose a random girl or woman and take them with them to somewhere in Khazarats, rape them and return them next day. Once the convoys with women and children started coming to Ternopolje, the rape started happening to the women in the camp. From Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica, this is Untold Killing. I'm Alexandra Bilic. So we include a content warning at the start of each episode, but this time the stories you will hear are especially graphic. In this episode, I try to understand how grim the treatment really was in the Priedor concentration camps. Despite how hard it will be, I think it's important to hear about the violence the detainees lived through in all its uncomfortable detail. If you're able to, that is, of course. I found it really hard to hear parts of the survivors' stories myself. But the scale of the violence is part of why the story of Priedor is so important. Like I said at the start of the series, it showed everyone at the beginning of the war how brutal things could get, which they did, over and over again for over three years. Yet the situation was allowed to escalate anyway. So the male detainees in many of the Bosnian Serb-run Priedor concentration camps were endlessly beaten and tortured, but the women were going through a nightmare of their own. At Ternopolia camp, sexual violence went on around the clock. The guards would come during the night. Well, sometimes they'd be the camp guards, and sometimes Azra, the vet on the detained medical team, says that they were Bosnian Serb soldiers let into Ternopolje by the camp guards. But the people, in men in military uniforms would come at night, would go to the parts of the camp where the women and children were sleeping, and they were with, would choose women with the flashlights, take them with them, and drove them out of the camp. They would return them next day or two days later. Did any of the women come to you to seek medical help afterwards? Yes, many of them, they came to talk to us, either because they were bleeding, that they were afraid for their lives, or they were asking if something can be done so they are not pregnant, or I think in some cases just needed to talk to someone. I remember when one woman came to me to tell me that she was uh, taken from the camp and raped in a house that was across the street. And she came actually and told me 
I just want you to know what happened to me, and I want you to know who did it to me. And that was it. Azra remembers one night in particular. That was actually uh, a night that I think the most women were taken out of the camp. From the windows of the clinic, the medical team could see the old Ternopolis cinema hall, which was now part of the camp, and where the detainees would sometimes sleep. So it was the middle of June, late at night. We were sitting in our exam room and in the dark behind a curtain, and we could see uh, women and children would be sleeping in a cinema room, and the military guard would come there with the flashlights and we would see how many people enter in, how many people en- uh, go out. It was, uh, uh, I believe, a full moon night or close to full moon, very bright. You could see if it is a male or a woman. You could see how many people were leaving a camp. And then we would hear the motor vehicles were leaving uh, proximity of Ternopolje. We, Idris and I, we counted. Idris was a doctor on the team up to 40, and then we stopped counting how many were taken that night. The violence may not have been systematic at Ternopolje, but the rape was, and it wasn't happening just there. There was organised rape of women who were kept in special quarters for that reason in Omarska. Ed remembers how close to it they were during their visit to Omarska in August 1992. Him and the other journalists were being escorted from the canteen up to the offices by the Bosnian Serbs for another one of their many briefings. We were then whisked upstairs, down a corridor, past closed doors, wherein I now know the women were being kept for systematic violation night after night. So we were walking past the rooms where the mattresses were on the floor where these women were being kept into an office. There were thousands of men imprisoned at Omarska but only a few women, 37 throughout the entire time it operated. And in the very beginning, in June, there were just a couple. Yes, only two women were there. Nusrita Sivats is a Bosnian Muslim who was born and raised in Priyadur city. She was a lawyer and then became a judge, which is what she did for 14 years until April 1992. The morning after the Serb takeover of Priyadur, Nusrta's name was on a list of non-Serbs who were immediately fired from their jobs. That day, she remembers feeling lost and confused. But that was so insignificant compared to what I would go through later on. Nusrta was able to stay in the city for a while, but on the 9th of June, she got called in for police questioning. And when she arrived at the police station, She was just told to board a bus instead. It was when we were near Amarska that I realised where I was being taken to. Because I heard from acquaintances, friends and relatives that a concentration camp existed at Amarska, where non-Serbs were taken. How much do you remember about your arrival to the camp? As much as I try to suppress certain things, to forget, the memory is vividly fresh. As I'm speaking right now, the images are emerging. They are in the forefront of my mind. They are the focus in my head. 
I was, of course, in a state of shock. I couldn't react, nor did I dare to. I gave in to my destiny. I was helpless. There were a lot, and I mean a lot, of people that I recognized and didn't know that they were in a masker. During the whole time while I was in a masker, people were brought in, women. The more people that were killed and thrown into the pile of death, the more people were brought in. The pile of death is something many of the Omerska survivors talk about. Apparently, whenever a prisoner was killed, their body would be thrown into a pile of other bodies outside. And once a day, the Serbs would take the bodies away on a truck, then just start a new pile in their place again the next day. Nusrata says her role in the camp became pretty clear to her on the first day there. From the way she described it, her and the other women were essentially the Omarska housekeepers. They served the male detainees their food once a day, and they cleaned the interrogation room above the canteen where the men were beaten and tortured. We heard it in the canteen. During the day, we heard people's screams and horrendous cries. It echoed throughout the concentration camp. And the rooms where the men were tortured were the same rooms where the women were made to sleep. So every night, they'd first have to clean them before being able to go to sleep on their mattresses. We would often find the tools used to beat and torture people. Pieces of clothes covered in blood. The floors were not the only ones. The walls were covered with blood as well. I kept praying to God for everything to be over, to be done with the evil. I couldn't watch anymore, nor could I deal with it anymore. I just wished to be done or to die of some natural causes. That was what I wanted while I was going through everything that was happening there on a daily basis. After how long did the guards start to rape women? I believe that most of the cases of sexual abuse and rape took place in the month of July. It maybe happened before. It might be the case that we didn't even realize when women were taken away to apparently be questioned or to do something that it happened then. There are still a lot of questions when it comes to when it began. Nusrita seemed reluctant to go back through her memories of the sexual violence she lived through, or to talk about the systematic rape in any sort of detail, which makes a lot of sense, obviously, what she went through was horrific and hard to wrap your head around. But she did give detailed testimony just a few years after the war at court. So what we know from that and from what some of the other women shared publicly as well is that Nusrita and the other 36 women were raped by the Bosnian Serbs at Omarska repeatedly. 
from at least the start of July until they were released in early August. Night after night, the guards would walk into their rooms where they slept on the floor. They'd pick the women they wanted that night and take them away to another room along the same corridor. There, they violated them. Each one of the women, Nusrita included, lived through this scenario over and over again for weeks. And what did you do to deal with everything that was happening in Omarska? We didn't do anything to deal with it. There was silence among women. No one said anything about it to anyone. You know, when fear takes over, the majority of women, perhaps all, chose to be silent. It's like they were keeping a secret from each other, only all of them had the same one. It was dangerous to be close, to talk. Except at night when we laid on the floor, exhausted from everything, we could speak. Ed Vuliami was able to talk to two other women who were imprisoned at Omarska when he was writing his book. He spent an evening with two of them, listening to a conversation he says he will never forget. One of them had been a, from a leading elite communist family, and the other, uh, her father, had been an Ustasha officer of the Nazi puppet regime in Croatia. But they had mattresses next to one another on the, in, in the rape quarters and became the best of friends, despite their political heritage. And they had a, a discussion about whether or not they had been permanently broken by this experience. And um, they hadn't. One, one said, yes, yes. And uh, the other lady said, no, little piece of shit. When they come inside me, I stare them in the face. How do you think you are? I mean, I thought, wow. But, um, you know, you get to sort of understand these different levels of, of survival and non-survival. One of the things that became clear to me, having heard the stories of Srebrenica and now Priedor, is that survival doesn't happen in isolation. It can become an almost communal act. And they could just be the tiniest things people did for each other in the camp. Even just being there, like the women at Omarska and their whispered conversations in the night. But Satko, for example, he feels that his very survival was literally down to someone else. If my dad was not there, I would not be here anymore. I would not leave Omarska alive. Satko gave me an example of this. It was when he got dysentery, which was quite common in Omarska. There was nowhere to wash. Detainees slept on the floor. Everyone's body was weak from the lack of food and the beatings. And the toilets were in an awful state. I mean, to be much more precise. Sorry, my English, the shit was all around. So Satko got really sick. And one of the main symptoms of dysentery is diarrhea. And um, I went to the toilet at uh, 10 to 7 in the evening. That was a problem because at 7 every evening, the guard shifts would change, and the 7 p.m. shift had a very particular reputation. For some reason, they were very keen to clean the toilets. They'd use the dirty toilets as an excuse to terrorize the detainees, which was pretty much all the time, since more than a thousand men used the same five cubicles every day for months. Normally, Satko said he would avoid using the toilets when this shift was on, but he didn't really have a choice this time. And just after I was finished, I heard the guard coming in and yelling and screaming and cursing and saying, look how dirty it is, bloody, dirty Turks, uh, 
They called us Turks usually as a kind of, you know, bad word. When he opened the, the, the door, he saw me and I was really very weak. I could barely stand on my feet. And he just looked around and he said, why is the toilet so dirty? He said, I don't know. And then he took his police button and he started beating me. After two, three, five hits, it really start, really starts hurting. And, and so he was hitting my head and I realized if he continues, I'm going to fall down. And that was the danger, you know, not necessarily him beating me, but if I lose my consciousness, they, they would not stop. They would simply continue until they finish you. So I started to defend myself with my arm. And, and when I was pushing my arm uh, at my head, he would start hitting my kidney and my, my back. And then when I was protecting my kidney, he would start beating my head. It was like a game. It was like a dance at some point. And at some point I realized I have to run. I mean, I couldn't. And I, I heard him breathing very heavily. And I realized he's tired. He's getting tired. So I, I took the chance and I just started running away. I kind of pulled out myself of, of his other arm holding me. And he said to me, stop, stop. So he started hitting again. So I just ran and I said, no, I cannot anymore. And I ran out. I came back to, to, to the room where we were. My dad was there. He was listening to me. Everybody was. Then I realized everybody heard it. I was really yelling very hard. And that was the moment when I lay down and I actually lost it. Satko says that with all the beatings, violence and torture he heard about and witnessed in the camp, he kind of got off lightly. But still, this story helped me understand what it actually means when people say that they heard screams echoing through Omarska. Every one of those thousands of instances of the sounds of yelling and begging for mercy travelling through the corridors of the ore mine, a prisoner was going through something like Satko or something much worse. The beating and the dysentery meant that Satko stayed unconscious for two days. When he woke up, it was a sweltering hot, sunny summer afternoon. He was so weak he could barely talk, and his dad had been with him the whole time, taking care of him and trying to keep him alive. So he was there when Satko woke up. I saw tears in his eyes, and uh, I first started thinking, why, why is he crying? And then I, I remember thinking maybe his brother is killed. And then he kept looking at me and I was thinking further. And I thought, but wait a second, when Becho was murdered, he didn't cry neither. And Becho was his best friend. And then at some point, I just had this moment of, of awareness that he is actually crying because he thinks I'm going to die. I'm really gone. Both of them knew people at Omarska who had died from dysentery. And Satko was in an awful state. And then I just had this crazy turn in my head. I somehow said to myself, I'm not going to die. I even really had a kind of picture of future, of a mass grave in which they are digging people and, and, and in which my body or my bones are inside. And I just remember saying to myself, I don't want to end there. I don't want to end up there. This is not my time. This is not my place to go. So I called my dad towards me and he was first looking at me and I said to him, you don't need to cry, dad. We are the main roles in this movie and main characters don't die. And then Satko started getting better. He was still weak, so he stayed in the room for a few more days, 
without going to the canteen for meals. His dad would bring him food and water. He started to be able to eat properly again, to stand up. And he says it was his dad's presence and his care that kept him alive. Satko was severely beaten only once, but the guards would basically pick on some men, beat them literally black and blue several times within just a few days. And the beatings, torture and murder got much worse in July, around the time the rape started as well, as Nusrita said. I'm not sure if anyone knows why exactly the violence got so much more intense that July. Perhaps because by this point, after over a month of total control over thousands of lives, the Serb guards were losing their own sense of humanity, just as they recognised it less and less in their non-Serb detainees. The month of July I used to call the killing days. There was one man's death in July that stands out in Sadko's memory. He was a man from Kozarats. His name was Sivats. The guards had clearly picked him out for whichever one of the many reasons that the guards would pick on a prisoner. So one day, this man, Sivats, decided not to go to the canteen for his daily soup and slice of bread, to hide from the guards. But they noticed him missing at the mealtime and then decided to go find him. And Sadko was staying in the same room as Sivats, also staying behind because he was still too weak to go to the canteen after his beating. And he remembers Sivats lying down on the floor of the room, as the guards approached, looking for Sivats, Sadko could hear them screaming out his name. They were walking along a corridor downstairs. And I, I remember the fear in his eyes very clearly. And, and he's, he's, he was even begging them, uh, please don't, please don't. He, he was screaming back, get out, don't let me get up to, to collect you because then you're done. He looked at me for a second, and I think he even realized that um, by not going out, he is risking maybe my life and everybody else's life who is in the room. I was not the only one looking at him. In any case, he, he decided to go out with fear in his eyes and awareness that he probably will not survive. And that's actually what happened. They, they took him out, and I, I heard screams and, and sounds of beatings for a longer period of time, and then it all stopped. And that same afternoon, I saw... I saw his body on the, on the kind of pile of five or six bodies. They made a kind of cross of them. So they, they put one body in this side, the other like plus on the other, and then again third and fourth and fifth and sixth. And Sivac's body was on, on top of it. So actually it was really crazy uh, pile of, of human flesh. Uh, this scene I, I will never forget on, on a clear July afternoon, while people were running for food, they, they killed six people, one of which was, was Sivac. But it turns out that even at a place like Omarska, even during July, the killing days, with the detainees having already experienced things beyond most people's comprehension, there was still room for something worse. Were you and the other prisoners aware of the existence of the White House and what went on inside it? Of course, actually, White House, you, you can't miss the moment you get to the camp. Uh, and quite quickly, we realized that they take people there for special treatment. And according to my information, most of those who got alive to White House are, are killed. I, I met 
two of them who basically are saying there may be few more who, who survived, but nobody got out because even the last group was taken out and killed. Every space in Amarska was horrendous, but the White House, it was a synonym for the worst form of torture of people. There, people were not killed with a bullet, but through monstrous and torturous techniques. It's possible that while they were still conscious, they prayed to God for it to be over, just like we did. If you remember, Nusrita and the other women were made to clean the camp, so twice she had to go inside the White House. That horrifying scene, I thought I would pass out. There was such a stench. There were people with open wounds, in a decomposing state. Around the wounds were flies and insects. The wounds were purple, infected. People were unconscious, in a state of madness. They were mumbling and kept saying things. They were deformed from torture. It was hard to recognize anyone, to know who was who. Like Satko said, it's hard to know exactly how many people were killed in the White House or how many made it out, but a few did. Later, I woke up in that White House. Um, it was like uh, five by five meters and uh, at least 200 people in that room. And they all looked scared. Wolves um, were bloody. That's coming up after a short break. The White House stood opposite the main hangar, where most of the detainees were housed, on a patch of grass, visible from the room where Satko was detained. He remembers another detainee who could see it through the window from his usual sleeping spot. Every morning he would inform us about how many bodies he saw. And every morning he, he would mention a number, how many people got loaded on this small truck. The same truck which brought food to us in the morning was actually the truck which took bodies of inmates who were killed during the day and the night before. And that cross of bodies that Satko mentioned earlier, he says it was just outside the White House, only about 10 meters from the hangar. That's where the pile of death, as Nusrita called it, regrew each day. The White House was a small one-story building with white plaster walls, a door in the middle and a window on each side of it. The classic layout that every child goes for when drawing a house. There was a uh, like little house that had uh, four rooms and in the room I was, it was like uh, five by five meters and uh, at least 200 people in that room. This is Mirsad Chaushevich. He is one of the few known survivors of the White House. He lives in Chicago with his family now, a world away from that little room. And actually, I wanted to understand just how little it was how much space five by five meters actually is. And according to a silly size comparison website I found online, it's just over eight times the size of a king-size bed. 
So just imagine each of these eight king-size beds would have to fit about 25 men for the room to hold them all. Mirsad grew up in a village near Kozarats called Hambarine, which you may remember as actually being the very first village attacked by the Serbs after the Priyadur takeover. Mirsad and his family ran away to the woods and then hid out in nearby villages for weeks. But on the 19th of July, the Serbs found them. The next day, he was separated from his family and taken to Omarska. When we arrived to uh, Omarska, there were a bunch of soldiers and policemen waiting for us, uh, very drunk, and uh, they looked uh, so uh, angry, like they're thirsty of the blood, and then they lined us against the White House wall, and they started beating us again. I remember one policeman uh, paid attention to me, and then uh, he focused on me, and he started hitting me with the police baton on my kidney, and, uh, and I started screaming. So I believe uh, my screaming actually just encouraged him to start beating him more and then he uh, switched to um, my right kidney. And then eventually I collapsed. Mirsad doesn't remember how long he was unconscious for, but sometime later he woke up inside the White House and looked at all the men around him. And they all looked scared. Um, Wolves were bloody, people were bloody and scared. And then... um, I will never forget that moment when one uh, prisoner ran into the room, uh, totally naked and screaming like uh, you know, a wild animal in fear. And uh, they were running after him. And then uh, he was uh, totally black. I thought he, uh, he had tattoos over his bodies. But then when I, mean, I looked better, he had uh, bruising from beating. And then they shoot him in the head in front of us just to scare us. That's, that's the first day um, of that camp. This was in the middle of July, and so the nights were only a little less hot than the days. What made it even worse was being squeezed into a tiny room with a couple hundred other people. We were sweating like uh, somebody was pouring the water over our bodies because we didn't have enough air, and then people started fainting and passing out, and then we started screaming for help, and then eventually they opened those windows. Or actually, it was one window only. And we couldn't go that night in the, to the bathroom. A lot of people had diarrhea and uh, they had to do their stool in, the, in their shoes. As if that wasn't bad enough, the night was just about to get worse, however hard that might be to imagine. Uh, around one o'clock in the morning, they just all of a sudden uh, came into the room, grabbed three, four, five people and took them to the hallway and started beating him like it was just unbearable to listen to those screams and they eventually uh, shot them in the head. And uh, next morning when we uh, were taken to the to relief ourselves, uh, I saw those people laying on the pile behind that white house. And then next night they came with the tractors and took them uh, away. The next day was the first time Mirsad and the other detainees who just arrived could properly look around the place where they suddenly found themselves. There was another building, a uh, bigger building, and then I, I noticed uh, some weird people. They uh, looked so skinny, uh, ripped uh, clothing, uh, unshaved and with long hair, and, and we could see the bones coming from their bodies. And then I thought, this is unbelievable. This is, how can people look like that? Those prisoners were actually prisoners from a city called Kozarets because they were taken there two months prior to our arrival there. 
And uh, unfortunately, we looked uh, like them a uh, couple of weeks later, just like them. We didn't get the water for three days and our lips uh, were so dry. And every time you open your mouth, it, it will crack and start bleeding. If you remember, Satko also spoke about intense thirst and hunger during his first few days at Omarska. And since Mirsad's group were treated the same way more than a month later, it really does seem like it was the camp guard's strategy to break the resolve of all the new arrivals, rather than just not being able to get enough resources to sustain everyone. The third day we got a slice of bread and a cup of tea, and um, every day they will be coming into the White House and ask for money or watches and, and beat the people and um, also uh, taking us daily on the concrete floor there in front of the building in purpose to um, kind of burn us because it was so hot. It was like 40 Celsius outside. And then um, I remember people passing out and um, getting first degree burns from the sun. And then there are so many terrible stories that I could talk about. And just like Satko spoke about in the last episode, Every man out of Mirsad's group was also taken for an interrogation. Unfortunately, many prisoners did not survive those interrogations because they were beaten severely uh, and they were coming back to the White House uh, with the skull open, uh, eye hanging, bloody face. You cannot recognize them. They were begging for water, but they couldn't help them and they were dying just like a fish with no air. And as every day until then, the bodies of those who were killed were thrown onto the pile outside the White House and driven away. Mirsad says his turn to be interrogated came on the fifth or sixth day. He isn't sure exactly. He was taken to those same rooms where Satko was interrogated, where the women slept, and was beaten for hours. It was only the first of several beatings. One night, a few days later, he was so thirsty he asked one of the White House guards for water without thinking. To Mirsad's shock, the guard actually said yes and escorted him to a nearby building with a bathroom and a tap. On the way to the bathroom, there were a group of five, six soldiers or guards drinking some alcohol. And then they, when they saw me, they started screaming and telling, hey, there is a victim coming. And then they stopped me and started beating me. But uh, the guard, on my surprise, stopped them and then he told them, hey, let the guy go drink some water. And uh, I went there to the bathroom. I think I drank maybe uh, 10 liters of water, thinking this is my last water. And uh, on the way back again uh, with that bucket, they uh, stopped me and then they told me to let the bucket down and then they started beating me again. I tried to protect myself, you know, by just a reflex. Again, uh, luckily this guard was in good mood that night and he said, hey, leave the guy alone. It's enough. The next day, when they were made to go outside. One of the guards from the previous night decided to start beating him again, payback for Mirsad trying to protect himself the night before. And then all of a sudden, there are a bunch of them beating me with uh, uh, like a school table, a piece of wood that belongs to the school table. And then every time they would hit me with that on my back, I would hit with my head on the brick. Then they used the chains and they beat me on my back with those chains. And uh, uh, I thought I'm going to die. I couldn't swallow that bread and I couldn't breathe. And eventually the, some lady in uniform also stopped that beating and told them, hey, leave the guy alone. It's enough. 
Both times he got lucky. It took just one camp guard feeling a moment of mercy for him to survive. Most in the White House didn't have that luck. Mirsad stayed in Omarska until its closure in early August. He was among the men who were transferred to another camp before being released to Manyacha, where he was detained until December. All in all, he spent just under a month in the White House. It felt worse and worse every day because we were skinnier and, and weaker every day and hungrier and then uh, every beating would mentally destroy us. Do you feel that you created a bond with the other men that you were imprisoned with in Omarska? Well, it's hard to describe that. Um, I, obviously, um, everybody was afraid of everybody. Everybody was um, using its uh, human instinct of survival and everybody was, I would say, selfish at one point. But... Um, at the same time, you could feel that, you know, you had somebody next to you that experiencing the same uh, thing. To say that the White House was the eye of Omarska's storm wouldn't be accurate. As much as I'd love to continue the hurricane metaphor from a few episodes earlier, it was actually the exact opposite. It wasn't a stillness at the centre. It was a tiny, inescapable darkness stood solidly in the middle of the camp like the center of a black hole. But the moment that has come to embody Omarska and the eager brutality of those who ran it actually happened outside of the White House. In his uh, book, one of the things uh, Ed Vuliami used to, to show what happened in Omarska was actually this very murder. And it was one of the most appalling episodes of the camp. I'm sure Satko's told you the story. And to tell the story, we actually have to go back in time a little, to the end of June. But we wanted to leave it for the end of this episode because it embodies so many of the worst parts of Omarska, all within just 35 minutes. And the man responsible for what happened during those 35 minutes was actually the very first person to be tried for war crimes by the tribunal in 1996. Out of all the Yugoslav wars, his name was Dusko Tadic. He was a parish pump, sadist, rapist, a murderer. And a lot of fuss was made about why the United Nations spending all this money to try you know, one little minnow. I thought it was a good trial because he actually epitomized so much of the macabre intimacy of this war. The people testifying against him talked about when they went to weddings with him and things like that. They knew him. Dusko Tadic was a very known man in Kozrac. He was a neighbor of my cousin. He had a pub called Nippon, where I also came sometimes. So just another heads up, this story will get very graphic. But like Ed says, it's emblematic of what the detainees went through. It was about a month into Satko's time in Omarska. On uh, 20 June 1992, Dusko Tadic came with a group of uh, his friends, comrades, and it was a Saturday afternoon and they uh, took out several men and tortured them very severely, very badly, and killed at least four that I know. One of these men, Emir Karabashic, had actually been a good friend of Dusko Tadic's. It was really probably one of the worst things in my life I experienced, and, and I didn't even see it. I tried to see it. This was another one of those moments where Sadko feels that his dad saved him. They were together, near where the men were about to be tortured. 
And Satko's dad stopped him as he was trying to go and watch what was about to happen. He realized that when he heard the screams of people outside, it's terrible screams, which were really going through your bones, that it was a terrible scene. And he wanted to spare me this. He told me later also, I didn't want you to have this in front of your eyes because you will never forget it. So Satko didn't see what Dusko Tadic did that afternoon on the 20th of June. But it was clear that even just remembering what he heard was bad enough. This all took 35 minutes. Imagine 35 minutes of men screaming in a pain and I could understand the message. We are dying. The screams were so terrifying that somehow, you know, we all knew they're not just going to be tortured. Satko had later spoken to another prisoner who was there that day, who did see it. And if I said it was the stuff of nightmares, it would probably be a huge understatement. He said, for instance, that they were beating them, cutting them with the knives, cutting them like a bread, he said. Um, the toes and fingers of Karabasic were broken. Um, he put a knife in his mouth and he asked him to bite. And then he was turning the knife. So when I know this now, I'm glad I didn't see it, honestly. We heard also later that um, one of the screams was of Fikret Harambasic, who another inmate, Jakupovic, was forced to, to bite off the testicles of Fikret Harambasic. This was also what caused the screams I described. Just to note, when Ed wrote about this moment in his book, having spoken to the same man as Satko, who'd seen the entire scene, he said that the man was forced to bite off Fikret's genitals, not testicles. Some of them were forced to eat dead pigeons. Some of them were forced to drink motor oil, which was there. I mean, it was one big orgy of evil, of violence. Senad Muslimovic told me that he was put on the hook against the wall, and then Tadic uh, put a knife in both of his shoulders, and he lost consciousness. He said, when I woke up, I was still hanging on the hook on the, on the wall, and the, the dead men around him. After 35 minutes, Satko remembers it all just going quiet. And at five o'clock exactly, the, the, the scream stopped. And on top of it, there were speakers. There are speakers in the hangar of Omarska. They let us to hear the song of uh, one of the famous Balkan singers of folks music, Sinan Sakic. And the title of the song is uh, Pusti me da živi. Let me live. So it was also kind of very sick, cynical uh, way of closing this, uh, this event. In 1997, Dusko Tadic was found guilty of crimes against humanity by the war tribunal, among two other crimes. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison and was granted early release in 2008. He now lives in Serbia. There are a lot of other equally awful stories from the camps that we could fill many, many more episodes with. But they would all lead to asking the same basic question. What on earth is going through these people's heads? That feels like the missing piece of the puzzle. I mean, even the survivors themselves keep coming back to it. Even though I 
witnessed many of these uh, crimes. I can't believe how humans could do um, things to humans or neighbor to neighbor. This is the philosophical existential question. There's a Bob Dylan song called Only a Pawn in Their Game. You know, it ain't him to blame. He's only a pawn in their game. Or there's the other way around. They all did it. I mean, the Holocaust could not have functioned without the people who got the tattoos in the right order at Auschwitz, you know, without the people who serviced the railways. The word I always use is reckoning. It's the harshest word in the English language. It means to come to terms with what has happened and with what you have done. It's what the Germans have done. The museums and the camp monuments and things in Germany are not being built by the Jews. They're being built by the Germans. There is really none of this in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Every time I go to Srebrenica, and I did it again just last July, you have a very, very strong feeling that they would do it again tomorrow if they had the chance. So what causes that? It's a big question. One that I came up against even in series one of the podcast. How do so many people get to the point where they are not only willing, but happy to commit crimes of this scale? And how does someone manage to convince so many of their own people to allow those crimes to happen? Of course, there were many Bosnian Serbs who were against what Republika Srpska, led by Radovan Karadzic, was doing, or those who didn't actively support it. But there were many of them who did. How do we go from being a relatively stable, uh, multi-ethnic community to where we got to in the summer of 1992? How is it possible to dehumanise your neighbours and friends in this way? So on the next episode of Untold Killing, I tried to find an answer to that question. Untold Killing is a co-production of Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica. It's written and produced by Jake Atayevich. Thank you to Elmina Kulisic, Kate Williams and Amra Mojkanovic from Remembering Srebrenica for helping put this series together. A special thanks to the Bosnian-American Genocide Institute and Education Centre for their partnership and support in fundraising, as well as Isla Delkic. And also thank you to Susie Cleverly for being the voice of Nusrita Sivat, editing, mixing and sound design by Rowan Bishop. Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. Theme music is by Matt Huxley. My name is Alexandra Bilic. <laughs>